Well, let me take my godparent hat off and put my preacher hat on and, and ask the question, what is the greatest hope that we can have for little Emily? As we've dedicated her today as a church, recognising God's good gift to Nicola and James and to us and to society in little Emily. I'm not sure she knows yet that she has an impact on society, but she does, for, for better or for worse. What's the greatest hope that we can have? In some cultures, uh, there's a practice of getting a, a small child, maybe on their first birthday, uh, and, and getting them to pick their own future career. So you put them down and you, you put, surround them with little toys or things that represent different careers. So maybe a stethoscope for a doctor, a piece of chalk maybe for a teacher, that sort of thing. And they select who they're going to be. I've got no idea what Emily's future holds in terms of jobs or in terms of relationships. Though I could be fairly confident in predicting that it will include a lot of ice cream. If you were, some of us were barbecuing yesterday and Emily was enjoying to the uttermost uh, a bit of ice cream. But as a church, we should be able to, to answer the question about what our biggest hope and desire is for her. If you've read the Harry Potter books, you'll be aware that in the stories there, there's a mirror called the Mirror of Erised, which means desire backwards. And it shows you Nothing less than the deepest desire of your heart. If we as a church could look into the, Emily, uh, into the mirror for Emily, what is our deepest desire for her, our greatest hope? That she would know God. That Emily Adams would know God. And the psalm that Jolene's just read to us gives us a, a, a wonderful way of remembering that, but also understanding what that means, what that knowing looks like. A knowing of God that produces good outcomes in the life and the heart of the one who knows. What do I mean by that? Think of a, a gymnast who's learning, training to, to become a, a better gymnast. And that first week when they're introduced to the, the high bars and they're told to swing around on them, or the first week that they're told to swing from one to the other to let go in midair and then try and re-grab onto the next one. Well, that young gymnast, if they know that the, the trainer is there, ready to catch them if they fall, they're going to be far more confident and far more able to let go of one bar and grab onto the other if they know the one who will catch them if they fall. Or think of a student who has some sort of, of learning difficulty, dyspraxia or dyscalculia or something like that. And if they know that their teacher knows them and cares about them and knows about their struggle they will be far more likely to be able to say, I find this hard. I can't do this. If they're looking at the teacher, knowing that that teacher knows them and loves them and understands them. What does Psalm 139 tell us about God, about really knowing God? And what does that produce? 
in the people who know him. That's what we're going to look at over the next few minutes. There are four things that I want us to to consider from this ancient song. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible uh, has many books and many different types of literature included in it. And the Psalms are songs. Songs written by the, the Jewish people and specific Jewish people to help the, the, the worshipping community respond to God rightly. Songs that they would sing over and over again that would instill them with truth. And Psalm 139 is, is one of these songs. So four truths about God. Firstly this, God is all-knowing. We start with this simple truth that God doesn't miss a beat. He knows all about the writer of this song. Let me read the first few verses to you again. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. God knows David, the name of the the man who wrote this song, he knows his words, he knows his thoughts, he knows his direction and his motivation. He knows everything about us, all of us. He knows our habits and our routines, he knows our ways and our means. God knows the way that we take our tea and he knows the way that we we eat our steak. If you, you eat steak, apologies to the vegetarians. He knows the things that maybe other people could know if they watched our lives closely. They know the things like how many times you're prepared to snooze your alarm on a Monday morning as opposed to a Saturday morning. But he also knows the things that other people could never know. The inner workings of our minds and our hearts. The inner jealousy perhaps that is hidden behind an encouraging smile. The resignation that is lingering in our hearts, that things will never change, even as we outwardly say, we hope they will change, that things will get better. God knows us outside and inside. And perhaps as you read these verses, and as Jolene read them to us, perhaps your initial response is, that's awful. To, to be caught up with fear that somebody would know me like that. But the psalmist's response is, is one of delight. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, he says. And we live in a world, don't we? An Instagram world of, of self-cultivation. Here's what you can see about my life. This is what I want you to know about me and my actions and my day. And over here are all the things that I don't want you to know. This song delights in the freedom of a loving knowledge of God. It's a protective blanket of being fully known. The psalmist is living in a world where he has no fears of being found out. Nobody accusing him of being a fraud. 
No doubts about the love of the one who, who knows him fully. As though people would only love us if they, because they don't know us. How many of us struggle with that? I think it would be fair to say we fear being known. But also we want to be known. We would love to be known to this degree. But only if we were loved. Let me read to you a description in a a children's book that I read recently of an old man loved by his family but who has hidden his terrible past from them for all his life. And in the story, his past is revealed and he finds that they still love him. This is the description. He moved through the days in peace and wonder for his whole story had been told for the first time and he found that he was still loved. That's the description of the psalm singer here. That he is fully known by God but, but loved. You see what he says you, in verse 5? You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. To be fully known and fully loved. God knows us. So I've been writing this sermon. I've been thinking about little Emily and I've been thinking about my own girls. Growing up in this world. In a world where if you put a foot wrong, the world condemns you. If you're not cool or you're not acceptable. And you can be rejected and you can be cast out and you can be cancelled. Oh, that, that Emily, that we might be fully known and therefore have no reason to hide ourselves. To be fully known without fear of being shamed. To not have to hide anything of who we are. What a wonderful grace that is. Secondly, God is always there. Listen again from verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. God is always there. And it seems strange that the person writing this song would would ask this question. And I think we first read it and think, why does he want to run away? But I don't think he's saying that. He's using this this, an, an argument of the extreme. He says, this is how all pervasive and how all present God is. There is nowhere that I could go where I would be able to get away from God. Where there is no place, no position that would put me in a a position where where God isn't there. And so he imagines the broadest dimensions. 
as high as he can think, the highest mountain, the lowest point at the bottom of the sea, the furthest point across the ocean, nowhere. Heavens, depths, far side of the sea. God is, God is there. And the way that this song develops makes it clear that it, this is not really about geography. He's not imagining that, okay, if I go south of the equator or if I go to the Arctic or the Antarctic or whichever way around those are, He's not talking geographically. geographically. He's talking about the highs and the lows of life. The darkest moments. He says, God is there. We've heard testimony in this church very recently of people saying just that. Finding in the, the darkest moments that God is present and God is working. And David, the man who writes this song, can attest to that too. We're told a lot about his life in the Bible. We're told of him having the experience of of finding God to be there for him again and again, despite his boss turning upon him, despite his family situation becoming the, the greatest, bloodiest mess you can imagine, despite being separated from loved ones, Heights and depths, going from a shepherd boy to king, in it all, he can say, God is there. I was never alone. God, who is the helping, guiding, comforting presence, even there. Whatever, however we fill that blank, whatever we would say so far in our lives is the, the, the depth, the worst of times. And whatever we describe as the the best of times. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God is always there. So we are never alone. That's the, the thing that's produced from knowing God. In the life of the psalmist, he says, I'm never alone. And as he looks to the future, he's got that confidence. I'll never be alone, no matter what happens next. On any given week, as we gather as a church, there'll be people amongst us who are looking forward to what's coming next. And then there will be those amongst us who are fearing what is coming next. A hospital appointment or a conversation that's going to take place or or just the unknownness of the coming days, weeks and months. To know God is to have company when everyone else abandons you. To know God is to be able to stand when the darkness should crush you. We said before, didn't we, that we don't know Emily's future. But neither do we know our own. If in a world's of war, of economic uncertainty, let alone the complexities of the relationships that each of us have. To know God is to know that we will be never, never by ourselves, no matter what happens next. Third truth about God. God is perfectly purposeful. And perhaps this third truth about God takes the, 
the personal nature of these first two truths about God and amplifies it and says, I want to shout it a little bit louder. It's not just that God knows everything. It's not just that God is everywhere. It's that in the midst of that greatness and grandness and magnificence is is that God cares about me. God is perfectly purposeful. For you, verse 13, created me, my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, when I awake, I am still with you. I love that last line. It's almost that what he's been saying is so good that he thinks I must have been dreaming. That the God of the bigness of being everywhere and knowing everything would be so personally involved in, in my life. I must be dreaming. I must be dreaming. Honestly, these middle verses, it's like David is sat in a hospital room for a prenatal scan. Obviously, this is written thousands of years ago before ultrasound scans. But it's like he's sat there and he's seeing the pictures come up on the screen of that yet-to-be-born child moving around, seeing how it's developed, seeing that little heart flutter away. And despite the fact... And despite what it looks like on the screen, the child inside, the mother, is, is barely bigger than a pear. And yet it's so precise and so perfect. And David looks back on his own life and says, God was at work when, when I was that little blob of cells. When I was no bigger than a pear in my mother's womb. And he sees the way that the child is being fed and provided for whilst it can do nothing for itself. And he sees the ways that the muscles and the bones are growing and growing together, being fitted to work. He sees the eyes that are beginning to form, that will one day open and see its mother's face. And then in time we'll see trees and birds and tractors and planes, mountains and oceans. All starting out as tiny little muscles and blood vessels and just combinations of things that just seem so small and by themselves insignificant and yet together and as david is reflecting on on this he gets into the sense of just looking at each child not just that one that he's seen on the screen but but every child that will be formed, that will experience and see different, unique things. Some will see life growing up in a city. Some will grow up in, in, amongst the fields, maybe on a farm. Some will walk in deserts. Some will climb mountains. Some will have fingers who paint. Some will type code. 
Some will cut hair, some will repair car engines. All unique, all different, but all purposed. And as David reflects on this, he again wants us to go from, sort of move from this one picture and, and then map it out on all of life. If God cares so much about one child in one womb, and God has put so much care and attention into one life, surely God cares about everything to come in that child's life. Every day, all the days, days ordained for me, purposed, chosen, set out, were written in your book before one of them came to be. I think we'd love, wouldn't we, to know what, what's going to come for Emily. Look forward and, and see the people she'll meet, the great experiences that she'll have. And David says they are purposed. God sees them already. If God's care and purpose were at the level that they are, as David describes here, before, before he was even born, how much more so now and going forward? God is perfectly purposeful, so we know that today matters. School, work, relationships, choices, it matters to God. Knowing God means that we have the perfect, the perfect response to the accusation that comes to us that we don't matter. That no one wants us or needs us or that we have little to offer the world. No, God is perfectly purposeful so we know that we matter and today matters. That accusation sometimes comes from outside. Friends or so-called friends in school or in the workplace that would say you don't matter because you're not popular or pretty or you're not the best at your job or because you have a certain job. You don't matter. Sometimes the accusation comes in, doesn't it? And sometimes the accusation comes from inside. I'm too old to be of any use. I'm not gifted enough to be of any use. I don't matter. And it's a lie. It is a lie. God is perfectly purposeful, so you matter and today matters. And tomorrow matters. And so we sing the song of Psalm 139, and we know that we matter. And if I could say anything to my girls as they grow up, and to Emily, and, and maybe to all girls and boys of all ages, I want to say that. You matter. Look at how much effort and attention God has already put into you. Fourth thing, God 
will bring things to fulfillment. Maybe at this point, as Jolene was reading the psalm, you winced a little bit. Seems as though there's a bit of a a turn here. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Some of those verses are so jarring that if you look in a hymn book that has psalms written out for people to sing, sometimes the hymn books miss them out. Just pretend that they're not there. But we can't do that because this is God's word. And so God means to teach us something through it. But one of the things that this does, it goes, Psalm 113 is not a song that goes, can't hear you, world. I'm just going to carry on. It doesn't ignore the realities of living in this world with all of its brokenness and with all of its harshness and all of its things that make you want to cry on a regular basis. Psalm 113 is a real song for real people in real life. And so David, as he's focusing on who God is, just goes, this is a messed up world. There are people who hate God, hate his ways, hate his laws, hate him being in charge. And David is recognising both that God's enemies cannot go unpunished forever, that something must and will be done. But he's also recognising that there is something of the God-hating, God-rejecting self in him. That's the world that we live in. As he encounters the wickedness and the brokenness in the world. He's not above it. And he's not separate from it. There is still the potential and even the probability of darkness in his own heart. But God knows him. And God is with him. And God is for him. And so he can pray that God will bring justice. And he can entrust himself to the God who will finish all things. I think that's what this, the end of this psalm leads into. That it's not yet done. That there's growth still to come in David. And there are still judgments to be made in this world. Knowing God is the ultimate change journey. Because God is in the business of change and transformation, and healing, and restoration. God will bring things to fulfillment so we can entrust ourselves to him to change us and to bring justice in this world. David writes this psalm maybe a thousand years before Jesus comes to this world. That Jesus is the evidence that we have, even more so than David have, that this is what God is like. 
that God knows all, that God is present and with his people. Jesus is named Emmanuel, God with us. And God knows us, so he knows that we can't sort out our own mess. And so Jesus comes into the world, God with us. He leaves the light and enters the darkness so that he might be a light for his people. And God gives us a purpose in Jesus. Jesus comes and affirms the the value of all people. Maybe you've never, never really looked at who Jesus is. And you've never seen the way that he affirms the weakest and the humblest and the poorest. He affirms people that the rest of the world would chuck out without a second thought. And he says to them, you matter. And Jesus is the great evidence of the great love of God, value of knowing God and the life affirming goodness of of the the knowledge of God. And he shows it as, as Jesus goes to the cross. And he says, this is what humanity, fallen, broken, frail humanity is worth to me. I will die for them. I will suffer for them. For the wrong that they have done. For the sin they have committed. So that he might be raised up. And transformed. And they might live in the way everlasting. A life of goodness and love and ultimate fulfillment. I want to ask you if you're here today, have you heard of a better hope than this? Is there a better desire in this world than to know God, to experience this perfect freedom? To never be alone no matter what the circumstances. To know in every moment of every day that you have a grand purpose. To serve the true and living God. And to know that you are doing good and doing what you were made for. If you're visiting us, maybe you're watching online. Why not come along the next few weeks? We're going to look more at Jesus. And you get to ask the question, could this great hope be true for me? We would love you to come back. And we'd love you to look more at Jesus. As we conclude, let me lead us in a prayer that is for Emily. But actually it's a prayer for every one of us that we would know God. Father, we want to pray for Emily and for ourselves that we would know you. Lord, that we would know that we are fully known and fully loved. That we would know that we are never alone in the best and worst of times. That we would know that we have value and purpose. No matter what others say, no matter how we feel. Lord, help us to know that we matter.
and that we matter to you. And we pray that we would know that you will finish the work that you have begun and that you will not stop or pause the work of transformation and renewal that you have begun. And that we will know that there will come a day and we will know with certainty that Jesus will return and the earth will be remade and we will be as we ought to be. We will be whole and we will be healed and we will worship you with great joy. Father, we pray that for Emily and we pray it for every one of us in the building, those watching online. Lord, that we might know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to sing.